Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. We are so happy to have Wade here with us this Sabbath, Wade St. Martin, and he is a graduate, actually, of Loma Linda University. He graduated with an environmental science degree, and he currently works for the county public health department. Wade also has a passion to witness and win souls Uh, for Jesus Christ. And so this morning we want to just have a little conversation with Wade to see what all he is doing. Wade, what exactly fuels your desire to live a life of witness for Jesus? Amen. To have people experience and participate in the joy and, and love of Jesus Christ as I have. So that's what fuels my, my passion to be a witness to Christ. And so I find when I study God's word and intercede and pray for people in my family, I find that I have more love for them and more desire to pray for the well-being and salvation of souls. Wow, amen. How inspiring. Wait, as you go about sharing your faith, what do you look for as a sign to let you know whether or not the door is open for you to move from um, 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 living as a witness to sharing as a witness? In some cases, the the door is already open. My family and I, we have a passion to share Christ to our neighbors. And for some time last year, we kept that in prayer during family worship. And the Lord impressed us to host an outdoor concert on our outdoor patio. And through divine intervention, friends from Advent Hope and medical students from this university came together and we planned a concert and it turned out to be a wonderful event. Mm. And after that event, we asked the attendees, what would you be interested in terms of social events? And one of, one of them was a healthy cooking class. Mm. So we befriended a family from the 1040 window and they came to our house. We had a wonderful time in fellowship and in food. And from that interaction, Um, they asked us for English classes. And through that, we've had a wonderful friendship. And even to this day, we plan to spend time with them um, throughout throughout the summer and throughout the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. And without that, um, I don't know whether or not that would have occurred. So that's a tip that you can take. Um, In some cases, the door may already seem closed. And it looks like the garden of their heart is dry and desolate. Ask the Lord for the Holy Spirit intact. And he can use your words to... um, add sprinkling of water upon that soil. Wow, that's fantastic. It seems to me from just listening to what you're saying, Wade, is that God can use each of us to reach someone in our own sphere of influence, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today we come to the last in our sermon series entitled, The Twelve People You Love. 
The prayer of your pastoral staff is that while this may be the last sermon in the series, that this will be only the beginning of living this out. If you've been around Loma Linda University Church for any period of time, you're well aware of the fact that our purpose can be captured in two words, growing disciples. We seek ourselves to grow as disciples, and we invite others to join us in that lifelong, life-changing journey with Jesus that is discipleship. It might help to have a bit of background as to why we're inviting you not to participate in a program, but into a lifestyle of discipleship. So a few words of background are in order. Our church is divided up in terms of its ministries and also in terms of its pastoral staff into six different areas. Worship and music is one area. What we're doing right now, coming to worship God and to lift to Him our praise, our honor, to glorify Him. Outreach reaching out to the world around us, seeking to make a difference in the lives of people whose lives need to be touched. That's the second area. A third area is generational ministries. We're involved from from the youngest of ages to our senior citizens generationally in helping to make a difference in people's lives. We also have the area of administration, where different ways we try to administer the work of the church and carry on what needs to happen. And then our media ministry, has become a very important facet of the university church in its life and its outreach. And then the sixth area, that's the area of discipleship ministries. It's that area of pastors and ministries that is what drove this particular approach in this particular series. So let me say just a few words of background about that, why it is that we're doing what we're doing. I want you to imagine that over here to your left, begins a timeline that stretches over there to the right. On this side is where people begin their journey either with us as members or begin their journey with Jesus and with us as members. We call this area joining. Joining is that facet of discipleship that gets the process started. That particular area of our ministry is led by Pastor Roy Ice. But once people have joined themselves to Jesus or walking with him, have become a part of this local body of believers, the next step, and I'll move a step to the right, is what we call connecting. This is led by Pastor Joey O. Connecting is what needs to happen when people have joined themselves to the body of Christ. Now they need to find out where they fit, how they connect, how can they become a part of a community of faith, how can they experience the fellowship of which the New Testament speaks that is so deep and rich and real. Now, once you've become a part of that, you're in a family. I'm going to take another step to the right. We all know that as part of a family, including the family of faith, we need nurture. We need care. We also need to offer nurture and care. There come those challenging moments in the lives of any individual or any family. A job is lost. A divorce erupts. A death occurs. And now the body of Christ needs to reach out in nurture and care and support. Pastor Adrian leads us in this area. Now we're going to step another step to your right. This is the area called growing. The New Testament is absolutely clear in its call to us to grow toward maturity in Christ. It's a call that is issued in different ways and by different writers, but is absolutely clear. Central to the task of growing is being able to 
take the word of truth, as Paul says, and handle it correctly. Pastor Miguel Mendes leads us in this area with many Bible study options, many opportunities for people to come together in fellowship, but also in the study of Scripture. And then finally, I'll take one more step to the right, and that is the area we call going. The New Testament is also very clear in saying that as we grow up in Christ, we are to go for Him. It may be to go into our families, into our places of work, into our neighborhoods, or into the world at large. As Jesus said just before he ascended from his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all people. Pastor Gilda Roddy leads us in this area, which is the equipping of the saints for ministry, the people of God to do his work. Now, anybody knows that when you have several areas working together, if they are left as standalone realities, you can descend into silos and chaos. So something has to bind all of this together. So we have a strategy and a structure that undergirds what is happening here. Pastor Joel leads us in this area, helping us to bind it all together and keep us on task. The overall goal is to move people from those moments of being without Christ to joining Him and moving through a process where they grow toward maturity in Him and are able to go for Him in the ways that the New Testament calls us to do. Now, you will be hearing from other ministry areas of our congregation, but for right now, this grows out of the discipleship ministries area. So it was as we sat together talking and praying and strategizing and asking, how do, we, how do we move forward in the direction that Jesus would have us to go, beginning with this joining? Well, we believe that the Spirit of God answered our prayer, moved upon Pastor Roy's heart. He was the one who developed the concept of the 12 people you love. The thing that we each loved about that right out of the starting gate was that its foundation is love. In other words, it's relationally rich because it connects us with other people and therefore can become a thread that weaves its way throughout this entire timeline. We never outgrow the 12 people we love. So that's the background to why we've been engaged in this series. I want to reiterate our prayer, our distinct hope is that this not be a program, not be just a sermon series, but that it be a way of life that you would consider taking up. In other words, prayerfully and thoughtfully, identifying 12 people in your world, from family, from church, from friendship circle, from those who are outside of Christ, and then say, Lord, please guide me intentionally in my relationships with these 12 people, that I might somehow be a beacon of light in their world and encourage them first to come to know Jesus and then second to walk with Him. It's not a program. It's a lifestyle. Something you can do wherever you are, whatever you do, growing strong with the 12 people you love. So with that in place, let me ask you this question. How did you join Christ? How did you come to know Jesus? I venture to say that every single one of us here today, when considering the answer to that question, will have to say, I came to know him because of the influence of someone else. For me, primary were the influences of my father and my mother. 
Those two people came first. Those two people were the ones who bent the twig in a Godward direction. You have an answer to that as well. It may be parents, maybe a teacher, a pastor, a colleague at work, a roommate at university. But somebody somewhere helped guide you into that relationship with Jesus. Now the second question. How would you like to be the person that others think of when they answer that question? In other words, when somebody else asks them, how did you come to know Jesus? How did you come to grow in Jesus? Imagine the joy that would be in your heart if they said your name. That person helped point me to Christ. That person helped support me and challenge me as I grew in Christ. That's what we want to invite you to participate in. But if you're like me, you have one last question. And that question is, how? I'd like to do that, you say. I would like to be an agent of light in the world. I would like to be a friend of Jesus who draws others to him. But how do I do that? It's right there that many of us trip up. We're frightened. What if they think I'm some kind of religious nut? What if I don't have all the answers to their questions? What if they feel like I'm intruding in their space when I start raising these topics? What if, what if, what if, and we stop? I want to point you to a passage of Scripture today that I think offers a wonderful answer to that how question. It's an answer that is within the grasp of every single one of us. It's found in Matthew 5, the passage that Pastor Gilder read just a few moments ago. It's in the early words of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to read these words thoughtfully. They're very familiar. We've read them many times, but linger over the images, the metaphors that Jesus uses to talk about those disciples of his who will spread their influence in the world. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. With those two statements, Jesus identifies the identity of his followers. Notice he does not say, pray to be the salt of the earth. Strive to be the light of the world. Plead with the Father that he may give you the honor of being salt and light. He doesn't say any of those. The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to his disciples, those people who have already chosen to follow Jesus, very imperfect people, as we will discover as we continue reading the Gospel of Matthew. Very imperfect people. And yet they become his disciples. And now Jesus looks at them and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That is who you are. 
And then he makes statements about salt and light. Now notice that in the ancient world, salt was used primarily for two purposes. The first was salt was put on food. And in doing so, it drew out the flavors of the food in more winsome ways. For example, you sit down and start to eat a piece of corn on the cob. And you say, mmm, this needs something. And so you put some salt on it, and then you eat all the corn on the cob. And when you finish, you don't say, wow, that was great salt. (laughs) What you say is, that was great corn on the cob. Because the salt brought out, teased out the flavors. Second purpose for which it was used was as a preservative. In a day before refrigeration, salt was rubbed into the meat, and it preserved the meat. Now, notice that in both cases, the salt is engaged in doing something outside of itself that either preserves or highlights something other than itself. It's not about the salt. It's about the food that it flavors. It's about the meat that it preserves. So it is with the disciples not about us. It's about that which God has called us to do and to be for others. You are the light of the world. Once again, when we consider light, we intuitively recognize that the light is not about itself. In other words, I don't take out a flashlight, turn it on, and then stare into the beam. I don't turn on media lights and then sit here looking at the lights. Because the purpose of light is not so that we might stare at the bulb. The purpose of light is so that we might look at that which the bulb illumines. And so we take a flashlight and we can see what we otherwise could not have seen. We turn on a light in a room and we see reality as it is. Not as we would have had to determine by feeling around in the dark. So once again, it's not about the light itself. It's about what the light reveals. The disciple, the light of the world, it's not about shining a spotlight on us. It's about illuminating the face of God. You are, that's our identity, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. But then Jesus says another reality. He points to the fact that if the salt, if the light, are not true to their character, true to who they are, they become useless. He says if the salt has no saltiness, useless, throw it out, trample it underfoot. If the light, if you take it and put it under a bowl, it's pointless. Why'd you light it in the first place? In other words, when they cease to be true to their character, They lose their usefulness. Now remember, Jesus is not talking about salt and light. Those are metaphors. He's talking about you and me. So while he's saying if the salt and light fail to be true to their character, they are no longer useful, what he is really saying is... The Christ follower, the disciple of mine who ceases to be true to the character of a disciple loses his or her usefulness. So then the question is obvious. So, Jesus, 
If it's that important that I be true to the character of a disciple, then what exactly is the character of a disciple? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's right there. In the verses immediately preceding the verses we read is one of the most clear articulations of the character of a disciple. We call it the Beatitudes. That's where Jesus lays out kingdom character. You remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, humility. Blessed are the merciful. In other words, compassion. Blessed are the meek. In other words, gentle. Blessed are the peacemakers. In other words, those who seek to reconcile rather than divide. He goes one at a time through nine different statements saying, this is discipleship. This is kingdom character. He ends up, by the end of that chapter, Matthew chapter 5, talking about the ultimate quality. You remember that passage, be therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I used to read that as a younger Christian and thinking, I can never do that. I can never attain perfection. But if you read that in its context, here's what Jesus is saying. Just before that, he talked about loving those who don't deserve it. Still loving them in a mature way. It is that that qualifies as perfection or maturity in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus says when you come to that point where your life is about loving others, whether they deserve it or not, you have attained Christian maturity. The 12 people you love. That's what we seek to invite you into, to invite you into a journey, journeying with people who at some kinds will, times will be very deserving of your love and at other times will be very undeserving of your love and yet continuing to love. And so Jesus says, remember kingdom character. When you are true to that, when you are true to that, you are truly being salt and light in the world. So I wonder, I wonder if people listened. Did the followers of Jesus take that seriously? Did they apply it in their hearts and lives and experiences? Well, let me read something to you. This is taken from an early Christian document probably written early in the second century. So 70, 80, 90 years, something like that, after the death, burial, crucifixion, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Were his followers taking it seriously? It's a document called the Epistle to Diognetus, written by Athenagoras. In this document, Athenagoras, in one part, writes about what it is that characterizes this community of Christ followers and how they are different from the world around them. Listen to what he wrote and see if you think they took Jesus' statement of salt and light and kingdom character seriously. Athenagoras wrote this. The difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. 
Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has determined and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but, their own private, but in their own private lives they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by their suffering death they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. In other words, decades removed from the time Jesus spoke the words, his followers were still taking them seriously. We need to preserve the culture in which we live by living lives of integrity and compassion and humility and grace. We need to bring out the unique flavors in human relationships, flavors that are lost if the creator of human relationships is not a part of them. And so they followed in the footsteps of the Galilean rabbi who said things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who don't strike back when others speak ill of them. And his followers took that seriously. They became salt and light in the world. The writer, Michael Green, tells a story about a missionary in China. Her role was to instruct other missionaries who were at that time arriving into China, not knowing culture in China, not knowing the Chinese languages. Instruct them and help them get a start and help them begin to learn those realities. On their first day of class, after the introductions, after giving them the lay of the land, now we're ready to start the class. The teacher went silent. She didn't say anything. She walked down one row, then walked down another row, down another row of students, just kept walking among the students as she worked her way toward the back of the class, not making a single statement. When she got to the back of the class, she exited out the back door. The students, you can imagine, were a bit bewildered. Where did she go? What was that all about? Trying to understand what had just happened. Not long later, a few seconds, a minute or so later, she re-entered the front door. And then she posed this question to them. What did you notice? What did I do? And then she waited. 
Well, there's a lot of uncertainty. Students thought, what? Well, you walked up and down the road. <laughs> no. Well, you, you went out the... No. No answer until finally one student rather timidly raised her hand and said, well, I noticed... I'm sure this is not it, but, but I noticed that you had on some lovely perfume. And the teacher said, that's it. That's it. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul, that we are to be the aroma of Christ in the world. And the teacher said, you will not be able to speak to people in this land for a long time. It will take you a long time to understand their customs. It will take you a long time to get to know them as friends. You will feel like you're wasting your time. But never forget this. Your life becomes an aroma of life to life or death to death. Let it be a sweet aroma of Christ's love and grace. Are you afraid to talk to your 12 about the things of God? Afraid to share because you may not know the answers or because your own life is imperfect? I understand those things very, very well. I urge you just to do this. Just pray for the Spirit of Jesus to so infuse your life that you will become an embodiment that is growing toward maturity of those qualities He lays out in the Beatitudes. Just keep slapping that perfume on day after day. Just keep doing that. Asking for His Spirit to be with you, to descend upon you, to fill you with the aroma of Christ. And then just live. Just live. If the Spirit of Jesus opens the door to where you can share, then step into that space. If that door doesn't get open, then you know what you do? You just keep on loving. Whether that's for a day, a week, a month, a year, or a lifetime. Is that not what Jesus called us to do? To love others as He has loved us? So we just keep loving. Keep putting on that cologne, that perfume, and allowing the aroma of Christ's life to waft in the air around us. I want to read something to you. It's not brief, but it's a story. I want to read it to you because as I read it, I thought that is what Jesus meant about salt and light. That is what we're striving for in the 12 people you love. So I read to you a story written by a woman named Karen Strand. It actually wasn't her story. She wrote it as it was told to her by Michelle Attaway. Michelle Attaway and her boyfriend were in a very dark place, a deep, deeply dark place. So I now join the story in Michelle's words. I stared at my boyfriend Jay through a chemically induced fog. 
Both rebellious teenagers, we left our homes and families to live on our own. We thumbed our noses at our parents' rules by the way we dressed, by using drugs, by moving in together without being married. So Jay's bit of news had me scowling in disbelief. He said, we were invited to their home. I said, what do you mean your mom has invited us to dinner? I was incredulous because I knew that Jay's parents were normal, in quotes, people, the type that crossed to the other side of the street when they saw us. Not only that, Jay had told me they were religious. Yet sure enough, we were invited to dinner, and the thought of a good meal convinced me to go. To my surprise, Jay's parents welcomed us warmly into their home. As we sat down to eat, I was painfully aware that my appearance, torn clothing, tattoos, a dozen body piercings, clashed with the elegantly decorated table. Yet his folks treated us with friendly respects and even asked us whether we wanted to play Scrabble afterwards. I was bewildered by their kindness. Over the next few months, Jay's mother continued to contact us. Sometimes she bought, brought a sack of groceries. Other times she wrote letters that quoted Bible verses saying she was praying for us. We'd read the letters aloud to our friends and then we'd laugh. Your mom must be crazy, I would chuckle. But my laughter couldn't mask the deep emptiness I felt inside. And our lifestyle of partying and drug use only got worse. Once, after a week-long drug party, Jay and I became aware of the spiritual darkness in our lives. We were very scared and called his parents, who immediately came over with their pastor and some friends. Though we fully expected to receive criticism and disapproval, these church people simply stepped over the trash on the floor, looked past the ugly death and skull posters on the wall. We even had a black paper bat hanging from the ceiling. Shoved aside the drug paraphernalia and began counseling us and praying for us. I was deeply touched by their love and acceptance. I'd been stuck in a downward spiral of depression and despair. And when I heard that God could give me a brand new life through Jesus Christ, I bowed my head and turned everything over to him. Equally moved, Jay prayed as well. From that moment, we knew our lives needed to change. Realizing it wasn't right for us to be living together outside of marriage, Jay proposed to me that very day. After a hippie-style wedding, outdoors and barefooted, Jay and I began attending my in-law's church. I noticed the sharp contrast between our untrustworthy friends and the reliable love of these church members. That was the kind of love I wanted to receive and to show toward others. I joined the church's women's group, but as the only married teenager, I felt out of place and unable to relate to the other ladies. I couldn't understand their excitement over getting out the hot glue gun and making dried flower arrangements. <laughs> Nevertheless, they didn't give up on me. They invited me to weekly Bible studies and fun times at the park. Nearly every day, Jay and I were gifted with some form of love and acceptance from our fellow church, fellow church members. As we struggled financially, we'd find anonymous money in the envelope or sacks of food on our doorstep once a new set of soft flannel sheets turned up on our front porch. We read our Bibles and attended a study group. As my relationship with God steadily deepened, 
I began to yearn for the opportunity to share his love with kids who were as troubled as I'd once been. So Jay and I began to volunteer with the youth ministry, working with teens living on the streets. Talking with those lost kids in their dirty, torn clothing reminded me how, at a needy time in my life, genuine Christian love had looked beyond appearances to a heart that needed Christ. And it cemented my determination to show that same unconditional love to others. Today, if a homeless person visits our church or someone comes in the door with purple hair and a nose ring, I walk right up and say, hi, I'm Michelle. Then I tell them I'm glad they came and invite them to an activity or church function. And when I'm not busy with church activities, well, I take care of my husband and children and, and, and sometimes I even get out the hot glue gun and make dried flower arrangements. <laughs> I love that story. And that story makes me very sad. I love it because that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's saying when he says, you're salt, you're light. So maintain integrity with the character of a disciple. What is that character? It's humility, it's compassion, it's grace, it's gentleness, it's love, it's reconciliation. All those virtues make up the character of a disciple. And Jesus is simply saying, as you walk in my footsteps, maintain that character with integrity, and you will be salt. You will be light to the world around you. I love that story for that reason. It's precisely the kind of lifestyle we hope you will adopt as part of the 12 people you love. But it makes me sad. It makes me sad because I read a story to you. You know what I yearn for? What I pray for? What I desire more than I can tell you? Is to sit down to prepare a sermon on salt and light and to ask myself, what does that look like? And to think of 5, 10, 15, 30 stories that grow out of our community of faith. Of being able to take any one of those, of having you sit down and share what Jesus is doing in you and through you. Stories that we don't have to read from somewhere else, but stories that we share from here what Jesus is doing in your life and in the lives of the 12 people you love. That's what I yearn for. I yearn for you to email me, to call me, to write me, to grab me in the lobby. See, I've got a story for you. This is worth sharing. Because you pastors in the discipleship ministries area invited me to identify 12 people and Jesus has been at work. I love that story. But it makes me sad. And for that reason, for that reason, I can't wait to tell your story.